This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. A story that we told you about uh, a week or two ago here on the program. Two local Hamilton NDP politicians have had human rights complaints filed against them, alleging workplace bullying and discrimination. Uh, This is a story that's starting to get some legs, as they say in the business. But uh, the story actually was uh, first brought to us uh, by the Bay Observer. And John Best, of course, the publisher of the Bay Observer, uh, he's with us here in studio to talk about this. John, thanks for coming in, John. Good to see you again. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about this. And I know that uh, I saw one tweet today that dismissed this and said, well, this is just political stuff around election time. This is not being brought about by the opposition parties. These are staffers. No, it's, it's totally an inside job, if you want to call it that. Uh, these people are... Our employees, uh, some of them were, were actually close friends, uh, uh, confidants of, of these two members, Paul Miller and uh, Monique Taylor. Uh, so this is not uh, something that's being orchestrated by the other two parties. It's an internal revolt. Now, you did some, some spade work, as you always do on this story, uh, and uh, about both of these situations. Uh, some staffers uh, were willing to talk anonymously. Others, uh, well, Todd White, who will let's name him by name, because uh, he's the one that filed the complaint against Paul Miller, uh, didn't mind uh, you know using the name and, and being a forthright about this. The ones that didn't want to, though, what, what were the, the what was the cause of the reservation? Well, the main the main cause of reservation is that they're seeking alternate employment and they don't want to be branded as uh, uh, whiners or troublemakers. Uh, you know, having this kind of negativity attached to you, uh, if you go in and apply for a job, you never know why you didn't get it, but. If, if somebody sees you as being kind of a clubhouse lawyer, uh, they'll go somewhere else. So I, I think the main concern was simply uh, trying to, you know, sort of recover from this and, and get a new job and, and move on. We need to always uh, put this rider on here as we discuss this, that these are only allegations at this stage. Complaints have been filed, but these are only allegations. That's right. And and there will be a hearing, I assume, at, at some point, and uh, these things will be adjudicated at that particular time. But uh, it's, uh, it's these are serious issues. I'm looking at the ones that, uh, that Todd Martin has brought forth against Paul Miller, and there's some pretty serious stuff here. Uh, there is. Uh, they they talk about uh, Miller uh, engaging in sexist, uh, racist, and homophobic comments uh, in the office in front of staff. That all has to be proven. Uh, but I believe uh, there's there's going to be some uh, some more tangible documentation of of some of that in in, in the case of Miller. And uh, but I, I you know I, I see uh, I don't see a, a significant difference between uh, the Miller situation and the Monique Taylor situation because some some pretty uh, bad behavior was alleged uh, in terms of uh, her office as well uh, trying to get an employee to file a false sexual harassment charge that that borders on some kind of a uh, misdemeanor, or I, I don't know if it's a criminal act, but it's certainly something that wouldn't be, it's against the law, I'm pretty sure of that. Well, let's talk about the Todd White accusations, and uh, Todd did not uh, feel comfortable coming on, and I can understand that because he's right in the middle of this, but he has gone on record with some of the things that he is alleging, Yes, uh, and he has, as we say, officially filed a human rights complaint. Uh, uh, he uh, talked about uh, discrimination uh, uh, based on family status, claiming the MPP started uh, doing it wrongful suspensions after White, a new dad, decided to take parental leave 
as well as decline in overtime and extra partisan activities. This is a, an accusation we've heard from from some of the other staffers of MPPs. It's a it's a recurring theme. This this whole idea that because you're working in my office, you now have to be a an unpaid uh, nights and weekends political operative. You got to go knocking on doors, canvassing with me attending events, sometimes attending events on my behalf because I'm not going, I don't want to go. Uh, so, and, and these, these, uh, all these employees that we're talking about do have a union contract uh, with a union called COPE, uh, kind of an unusual name given the circumstances. But in that contract, it clearly states that any political activity on behalf of these staffers has to be strictly voluntary. And yet I can think of not only White, White's the most, well, let's look at White. In his case, uh, he, he worked for Miller for over 10 years, uh, almost 12 years, and, and was credited, I think, with managing his, his election campaigns. So he works for him for 10 years. Everything seems to be going well. And then uh, Todd White starts a family. Todd White and his wife start a family a couple of years ago. And now he's got parental duties, and he can't get to all these weekend and night political events, partisan political events. He can't be there. And uh, that seems to be when the relationship fell apart. Same thing with Taylor uh, in, the, uh, in, in Sandra's uh, uh, allegation, uh, or actually Alyssa's allegation, which she says she had a, an ailing father, and it meant that she had to spend a fair bit of her free time with him. And as a result, she was unavailable for uh, political, partisan political activity, uh, but was under tremendous pressure nonetheless to do it. And she says the, the relationship with uh, Taylor deteriorated over that issue, and, and the, the uh, false sexual harassment charge, uh, she believes, and, and her co-worker, who's also suing, uh, they both believe that the sexual harassment charge was meant as a quick way of getting rid of her because it would be very difficult to dismiss her for not engaging in partisan political activity. So there's a nasty little thread there of these people being treated kind of like unpaid uh, political operatives. Well, some of the allegations here, as you say, are pretty serious. Uh, one of the ones, and this is against uh, MPP Taylor up on Hamilton Mountain, alleging uh, discrimination based on gender, harassment, and a poisoned work environment. Uh, says that she was hostile and demeaning toward her. And then, uh, and this is, uh, you wrote about this in the piece in the Bay Observer. Uh, it's alleged that Taylor pressured her to accuse a co-worker of sexual harassment yes. uh, because she gave hugs. Uh, and again, these are accusations at this stage, but uh, pretty serious stuff. And, and, and clearly, uh, you know, th these are over the line in each and every one of these. And uh, you've got to wonder at some point if this is the tip of the iceberg. I think it is, uh, to be honest. I, I, and I've also heard that, uh, I'm not going to go too far with this, but there has been turnover in Andrea Horvath's office. And uh, I know of at least one individual who I spoke to that is on another one that's on one of these extended leaves. So if you, if you just add that up, if the public were saying, well, why should I care? It's inside baseball. Okay, so Taylor's got three people on, on long-term sick leave. There's 180,000. Uh, uh, White is on leave. There's roughly 60,000 or de depending. And then th we know of at least one in Andrea's office. So you're up to $300,000. And guess who's paying that? It's not the NDP. It's these people are paid out of the legislature. So it's taxpayer dollars subsidizing 
this kind of managerial incompetence. You you talked to a number of the people here. What what was their sense? Are they, are they are they are they nervous about this? Are they are they angry? What's what's the sentiment? There there was some nervousness at the beginning, but what seems to be taking over now is a real sense of outrage. Uh, these these uh, these women and Todd are 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 definitely angry. Todd's a very even uh, you know he's got a very even temperament, but but clearly uh, you you've had a twelve year relationship with a member. 10 years of which seem to be going pretty good. And the other little subtext with the Todd thing is if you go way back to the original nomination for that riding by the NDP, there were four candidates, uh, Miller, uh, Dominic, or, uh, uh, Sam Marula, uh, another person who I can't remember, and Todd. And uh, it appeared uh, when they were doing kind of a straw count that Marula was ahead and, and would likely have been the nominee, but uh, Todd was induced to support Miller, and uh, that turned the tables. And, and there was kind of an unwritten deal that Miller would serve a couple of terms, and then Todd, uh, the younger guy, would be ready to take over. Of course, that didn't happen, and uh, Todd feels, uh, has felt that that was part of the issue that as time went on and, and there was sort of a reneging on the, the, the allowing Todd to run for the seat, that uh, that started creating a bit of paranoia that maybe Todd was plotting against Miller. So it's uh, all very soap opera-ish, but it, it kind of points uh, to people that you, you really got to start questioning whether they have the character and the qualifications to be doing what they're doing. The uh, the other element to this, and you talked about this in the the follow up article that was in the spec today, uh, from Matthew Dongongan, it, it talks about this that this isn't going to get resolved anytime soon because these people, all the ones that have filed complaints, are also members of the union, uh, so they've got to go through the union before they even go to a tribunal. So this, I I don't know what the time frame is going to be, but it doesn't sound like this is going to get resolved. Uh, before the election, I don't. Who knows? I mean, these things usually take an awful long time. You can bet that Andrea uh, Taylor and Miller are all praying that nothing gets done before the next election. But my my sense is this thing is finally starting to spread out from Hamilton. It's starting to get some attention in the provincial media, and it's not going to go away. And it is going to be an election issue for all three of them, uh, certainly here in Hamilton. Um, you know, when you, you you listen to Andrea this week. Uh, this Michael Harris scandal in uh, Kitchener where where uh, he had to step aside because of inappropriate behavior and she wants to know what did what did Rob Ford know and when did he know it well I would say Andrea when did you know about all this trouble in these writings including your own well what what pressure does that put on a leader uh, because it's happened the Mike Harris thing has happened uh, the Tanya Granick Allen uh, Twitter comments I know they were old but I mean they do define character of the individual and Ford's comment about that was that, uh, well, we don't tolerate that. That's not what our party's all about. But apparently he'll welcome into caucus if she wins the election and gets the nomination. So that's a little duplicitous. I mean, uh, in the past, federal and provincial elections, when candidates have gone rogue or there are accusations against them, usually what happens is the leaders drop them like a hot potato. Is that going to happen here? I don't know. I'd, I'd heard, a, a, and I don't have this uh, on great authority, but I heard uh, that yesterday following the... Uh, the, the, the leaders debate in uh, Toronto that there was some, uh, I think it was Global or somebody uh, tweeted that Andrea was contemplating dropping one of the local members. I would say you can't put a piece of paper between the two of them uh, in terms of 
what's being alleged. If, if one's going to be dropped, I think both of them uh, should be dropped. How is this going to resonate with the public? These are both people that have won re-election in their writings. Uh, obviously, they're going to be the candidates, or at least uh, to, as of this day, they're going to be the candidates in those elections. Those are what the NDP would consider, I guess, safe seats because they are a couple of incumbents. Right. Uh, do they do they do the philosophically right thing, quote unquote, or do they do what they're supposed to do to try to keep those two seats? Well, they've been uh, both of them. I think have now been duly nominated. Uh, certainly, the leader can still step in. Um, and and then the other thing is, uh, what what do the opposition uh, parties do about it? What do the opposition candidates do about it? Do they have the wherewithal to exploit the issue? At, at some point, the ball is sort of in their court. I mean, if it does become an issue at the door, it's going to require uh, the the people that are running against those two incumbents to to raise it. Some people are not comfortable with that kind of politicking, especially people that are new to the game. Uh, lawyers are involved in this. Uh, this is yeah. not just a couple of people that are, are going to try to take on the world here. Apparently, uh, both uh, the, the two people that are alleging allegations against Monique Taylor uh, have a lawyer representing them, and I understand Todd White has a representative. Three of them uh, for Taylor. Yeah. So so this has got some legs, and, and these people are not just going to go away. No, they're, they're, they're not going to go away. They're, they will get whatever they're going to get. I mean, uh, there's there's uh, grievances that haven't been resolved. And I have to tell you that in the case of the Taylor, I think it's fair to say in the case of all the, all the people we've discussed today, they're not overly happy with the way this COPE union has been handling this. Uh, uh, I talked to uh, one individual uh, who said that who's on long-term leave, and for some reason her, her pay got cut arbitrarily by 300 bucks. And, and she's not sure why, but they, they really feel that the union, it, it's kind of a, you know, it's a bit, think about it, it's a bit of a conflict of interest in a sense that you have a union that's representing these workers, but the unions have always had a major role to play in the provincial NDP party. And so are they, are they as aggressive uh, as they could be in going after the party, or are they trying to make nice there, there's a, certainly some frustration on the part of uh, of a couple of these women and and uh, probably white that uh, the union has been not missing in action because there are grievances and so on, but there's there, there just seems to be a lack of urgency. I guess would be the best way to describe it. We only got a few seconds left here, but we just want to remind the listeners that the, the these charges, these allegations that have been made, this is for a human rights tribunal. This is not a lawsuit. Uh, and and whether or not the union responds positively or negative is, is my understanding inconsequential to how the Human Rights Commission would deal with this. Two separate issues. Uh, in in I think all three cases they've agreed to let the even though they filed the human rights complaints they're they're going to try to let the union process unfold first. And but these human rights complaints are filed. Uh, it's a very public process. There'll be no need to FOI anything. Uh, when when rulings are handed down, they'll be available, as will the the union arbitration uh, findings. So, this is this is whether people want to duck this issue and just hope it goes away or not. This is going to be an issue in this campaign. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer, thanks so much for the time today. I certainly will stay on top of this. I know you will. Yeah, thanks for your interest. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML. You may have heard uh, that there is a municipal election coming up uh, this fall in October. 
We've mentioned it uh, maybe five or six dozen times in the last few weeks. Uh, well, the city is getting ready for that. Uh, we mentioned that uh, Tony Fallis, who's the guy in charge of uh, running the election for the city, uh, is available. If you want to be a candidate or get some information about that, you can contact Tony at City Hall. But uh, the elected officials are also getting ready for it uh, to that end. Uh, there is a, a summit coming up tomorrow. It's called Hamilton Summit 2018, Advancing Hamilton's Priorities in the uh, Provincial Election. Uh, because that will have an impact on what's going to be happening in the city. Our next guest would know all about that. He is the mayor of the city of Hamilton. Fred Eisenberger joins us here in studio. As aside from this head cold you've got, how are yeah. you doing? No, I'm doing great. Doing great. You sure? Yeah, well, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm muddling through. I, you know, to thank, thank God for Advil and Fisherman's Friend. And uh, lozenges, you know, yeah. I'm sure there's lots of people out there that are, uh, that are struggling with uh, kind of a late winter cold. It seems to be uh, pervasive, and it seems to hang on forever for, for whatever reason. But we'll shake it off when the weather warms up, and uh, we're, we're all looking forward to and some And, of course, more. this is the week you're losing yeah. your voices. The week you've got this speaking engagement and this speaking yeah, engagement. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's kind of par for the course we yeah. struggle through. And you know what? Uh, we're looking forward to some decent weather. It's unfortunately not going to happen this week, but... Uh, hopefully next week we can look forward to some warmth and uh, some some breaking of this kind of winter cycle and get on with spring. I want to talk about uh, what's going to be happening. I, I, I like this idea. The, the, the whole principle of this thing is is basically to get people involved and, and talk about what the priorities are. Uh, talk to us about the genesis of the idea and where uh, where this came from. Well, actually, it was uh, Sam Arula that uh, kind of first raised the idea uh, in terms of uh, him wanting to get at the whole issue of downloading, the downloading that's happened uh, between the, the feds, the province, and down to municipalities. And, you know, as, as, as you know, much some of it has, has kind of uploaded again, but certainly not all of it. And that was really the genesis of the idea. And uh, then we really started to take hold of, you know, okay, how, how do we do this respectfully and give all the candidates an opportunity to talk about uh, issues that they think are important for Hamilton on the basis of, uh, you know, having an understanding of what the issues are in Hamilton. So... Uh, we, we're going to have panels tomorrow, uh, headed up by uh, Rob Rossini, former director of finance uh, in the city of Hamilton. Who's he's now, retired now. He's retired from Toronto yeah. and uh, is now freelancing and doing some. And he's a, he's a very engaging, uh, good public speaker. Yeah, so. he, he was an outstanding finance guy for, he was. for both cities. And well, Mississauga for a while, too. Yep. And uh, he'll be facilitating some uh, some panels on, on the, 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 the categories that we've defined, which is uh, you know predominantly health care and the offloading issue in terms of emergency services, uh, obviously infrastructure, and that uh, this seems to you know, obviously be the perennial issue that uh, goes forward. And we're going to have various senior staffers uh, discuss those issues from a city perspective. And then, uh, you know, in the audience will be, uh, hopefully, the candidates uh, that are running in the next provincial election and whoever else wants to tune in. And this will also be live streamed, so it's going to happen right in our council chambers. Folks can dial in on the, uh, the live streaming uh, channel uh, from our website. Listen in on uh, the discussion and understand better what the the city issue is city issues are, and then hear from the candidates as to uh, how they propose to address them in the next provincial election. Uh, we've heard that uh, Andrew Horvath will be there. You know, both the local candidate and the the leader of the NDP. Mm -hmm. She's confirmed she will be there. Uh, apparently, there's a, a, a scheduling conflict for the premier, and uh, we haven't heard back from Mr. Ford as yet. Uh, but all the local candidates that I'm aware of uh, have all indicated they're going to be there and. Uh, participating in this discussion. So in the afternoon, they're going to have their opportunity to say, here's what our party uh, stands for, here's where our party is going to advocate for, here's, here's what I, as a candidate for in Hamilton, are going to, uh, to advocate for on behalf of the city of Hamilton. This is why I think this is such a good idea, because I've been there, done that. And, and you know, when my first tour on council was back in the late 1990s, uh, which was the same time as the Common Sense Revolution. 
when Mike Harris got elected. And I, I don't want to get into whether or not you should have. He was there. And, and everybody had the common sense revolution. They all read the little blue book and they said, oh, this is what he's going to do. It's going to be fabulous. He's going to save us billions of money. But he didn't talk about downloading uh, in that little book. And he didn't talk about instituting current value assessment. And and uh, you remember, Fred, because uh, you were on council at the time, yep. that that there were an awful lot of people saying, how come you're raising our taxes? And I said, we're not. It's it's the current value assessment and it's the downloading. Yeah. It had nothing to do with us. We brought in a 1%. Uh, and they, dog, oh, come on, you guys are just passing the buck. Because the MPPs at the time said, yeah, they're just passing the buck. No, they caused it. So this, what you've created here is an open dialogue, and right. that, that's that's healthy for everybody. Yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, it, it also reflects on uh, the downloading that came from the federal government back in the day. Sure, you were, you were there when uh, when they uh, dropped the uh, the uh, the housing stock on the city of Hamilton and and said, "Here you go, look after it," and didn't leave behind uh, enough dollars to uh, to maintain and repair the uh, the housing stock that we have currently, and it's still an issue today. And it, it'll be a topic of conversation on, uh, on tomorrow, uh, as, as, as will be the long-term uh, care issues, the, uh, the affordable housing issues. Uh, all of them are challenges in our community that we need our federal and provincial partners to participate in. And then tomorrow, uh, we'll be talking about the, the the housing shortage, uh, you know, so 6,000 housing, affordable housing units that were short in the city of Hamilton. Uh, we, we need, uh, we've stepped up as a municipality in terms of our $50 million 10-year plan to, to, to at least get some more money into that, that housing stock and that affordable housing stock. And, and we're looking for the, uh, the provincial governments to, to, to match or to make their contributions as well. And I understand that uh, there'll be, uh, you know, some imminent announcements coming up from, uh, you know, particular parties in terms of how they propose to do that. So it would be nice for the public at large to know what their plans are going forward in terms of that sector of our economy. Well, and it's difficult sometimes to get that information out. And we did a segment uh, about a week or so ago. Uh, Steve Pakin, as you know, on the agenda with Steve Pakin, did a segment about, uh, well, it was about what happened on Lock Street, but the tie-ins obviously were poverty and, and gentrification, et cetera, et cetera. And he had a Hamilton panel on, including a counselor. And yep. uh, I, I was frankly disappointed uh, because I thought they, they spent way too much time talking about well, how crappy things were in this city. And this is probably, and, and, and very little to no time talking about what the city is doing about it. And the city has been doing something about it. Uh, you know, yeah, how many absolutely. other cities have indicated, you know, you, you got a $50 million fund there that you could have spent on anything. And you said, no, this is going to go to affordable housing. Yeah, and that's, poverty. that's dedicating it to poverty. And yeah. that's, de- it's not enough. Of course it's not enough, but it, it, we're making moves in the right direction. And and and, I, and those are the sorts of things that have to go on the table, so residents can get an understanding of this. Yeah, and I think that's the uh, that's kind of the the secondary issue here is that people that dial in and and uh, you know live stream this thing will get a better understanding of you know some of the challenges we face, but also some of the positive steps we've taken to uh, to address them uh, locally. Uh, you know, we're not uh, we're not working in isolation. We have uh, we have uh, other partners. Uh, there are funding issues that we keep arguing about. I know, I know that AMO is coming out with their uh, recommendation for the next election, which is uh, that uh, one cent or one percent of the uh, the PST uh, going to municipalities for uh, future infrastructure. And one of our arguments has been all the way along with both the feds and the provinces, give us a predictable funding source. So they they require that all municipalities do an asset management plan. 
but they but we uh, we we have no way of uh, of actually managing that asset management plan with any predictable funding sources. We have to go cap in hand uh, still on uh, on various issues. Now there've been there've been improvements. Uh, with the gas tax uh, the gas tax revenues has been a significant improvement. We have uh, the federal government now making significant investments in transit, and you know that's uh, that's becoming a little bit more predictable than it was in, in the past. But there are still huge gaps in those areas, and we need uh, we need uh, you know our provincial partners to find a way of having uh, revenues that grow with the economy come to the municipality. The same argument we made uh, when uh, when the Mike Harris days were downloading upon us and saying, uh, you know, why why don't we look for that predictable revenue source rather than continuously throwing it up or down between the two levels of government? Is, is there dialogue, uh, Mr. Mayor, and, uh, is there an understanding? And, and again, I don't want to spend too much time talking about those those dark days in 97, 98 when we were trying to convince the, the Harris government that, look, this is not fair and it's not right. Yep. Because they simply the because we I remember a meeting we brought all the MPPs where at that time we're all government MPPs most of them anyway uh, into the city council and we said here's our problem and they simply they simply recited from the common sense revolution playbook right. just go find three percent savings and you'll be fine well no that's not what it is yeah. uh, they didn't get the fact that downloading uh, was not revenue neutral it was revenue neutral up in Cobalconk Ontario where there's no social service cost it was not revenue neutral right. in Hamilton Toronto Windsor uh, so many other cities but they didn't seem to understand that they were simply going by the Bible that Mike Harris had given them mm-hmm. uh, is is there a, 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 a an understanding here about the the commonality of the problems that are going on. Yeah, and I think so, and I think that's the whole point of the exercise is to to have them to have them understand uh, the complexity of uh, the funding regime that currently exists and uh, how we can make improvements. And you know, as you as you point out, uh, we we said back in those days that uh, that would you know, the, the downloading the social services on the local municipality was going to cause an enormous amount of pressure on the on the the local economy, especially when the economy was turning sour. Uh, you know, when the economy is flourishing and good, it's it's not as much of a pressure, but uh, when it's not doing as well, then that that whole that whole sector actually demands more money out of uh, out of this whole uh, out, of, out of municipalities, and that uh, that is a particularly heavy burden for municipalities to uh, to to bear. The, the good news is that the uh, the current government, the current Liberal government, has uploaded all social services back to the province, and that took about four or five years to do. And uh, as you recall, we had numbers of sessions where you know the the the, the difference was twenty one million dollars, and then it came to you know twelve million dollars. So in each and every year, they uploaded a, a certain amount back up to the uh, the province of Ontario, and I think that's the right step to take. But there are other areas like like uh, ambulance services that are supposed to be 50-50 in terms of cost sharing that don't necessarily end up that way as a result of uh, the way the funding flows. And we have significant offloading issues that uh, we're making some improvements on, but, uh, you know, it still needs to have uh, a broader solution in terms of long-term care beds. So one of the challenges that the hospitals are facing right now is, First of all, they haven't had increases in funding, and secondly, uh, there uh, the the aging population is putting a, a lot of people into the emergent care system, and then into uh, hospital beds, and uh, you know they may or may not have to stay there. But could go to some other facility, but there's no other facility to send them to. And that's tying up hospital beds, which then puts pressure on the emergent care sector because they can't get them into the hospital and, and land it into bed. So that's a spillover problem that needs a broader solution. And that's some of the some of the issues that we're going to be talking about tomorrow. Because it, it got into the idea, well, we're simply going to defend our position. Now, you know, that, that you, you guys in the city, you can't just keep coming to us and asking for more money. you got to get your own house in order. That was always one of the answers 
answers that we'd get from the federal and provincial governments. Uh, but we'd look at the other G8 nations, and Canada was the only one that did not have federal and state or provincial consistent funding for cities. Even the United States in the depths of their recession back in those days never touched that. They said, no, that's essential. That has to happen. Uh, they're still just now coming to the parade, and they're not getting there. And there's the, the funding, of course, is woefully inadequate. But one of the answers, I want to get your opinion on this, one of the answers that they've come back with was to say, we'll give you more taxing policy. You can tax your citizens more if you want. Uh, and I talked to, to well, your counterpart, Mayor Goldring in Burlington, who's no. on the AMO board, mm-hmm. and, and he said, that's a non-starter. He says, we can't go back to our residents and say, we're going to increase your property taxes so we can do this. You're, you're, we're taxed to death already, and, and the, I think you know that, Mayor Goldring knows that, everybody understands that. Uh, the bulk of the, so the, the, the ratio is still 50, 41, 9, I think, is the, uh, the ratio now. So, the, you know, we, we collect 9% of the overall tax load that happens uh, in the country. Uh, broken down by 50% goes to the federal government, 41% goes to the uh, the provincial government, 9% uh, comes from the municipal tax base. So the, the 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 most of the money does not lie in the local local level. We're, yeah, but there's another element managing. to this that most people tend to forget. <laughs> that federal and provincial tax is taken off my paycheck before I even see it. Right. So here's my take home pay, says they say, and then the city has to come along and say, well, okay, we need more from you. That that means money that I'm not going to be able to spend on groceries or rent or whatever the case might be. That's that's cutting into what I had left, right. and that's simply the nature of the beast. That's not yeah. the municipality's fault. That's just the way the tax system works, and it's visible. So so the the, the, the most visible uh, tax form is the municipal tax uh, regime that we have. And it's also the most regressive. <laughs> It, it is. Because uh, it's and not based on your ability to pay. And it's one that uh, most people focus on in terms of their tax loading, but uh, the, the majority of their tax loading comes from other levels of government. So I, I think the ongoing argument is, uh, you know, find, find a predictable revenue stream so that we can, we can have a, a sharing of the resources and not have to go cap in hand in each and every instance to, to deliver the services. And most of those services are all being delivered in, in cities. And so why are we disadvantaging cities to the degree that we, uh, we are handcuffing them in their ability to plan and, and, and be sustainable uh, with a you know, sustainable funding mechanism in place? That hasn't happened yet. It's better than it's been. Uh, we have more resources coming from our federal and provincial partners on a more predictable basis, but, uh, but more improvements need to happen. I don't want to get into too many specifics because I'm sure you'll cover a lot of the stuff off uh, through the course of the day tomorrow. But there was one uh, particular subject that uh, that caused an awful lot of angst for city council as they were going through the budget process this year, and and that was the levy with the conservation authorities that uh, yep. that you got nailed with. Yep. Uh, that's that's really in the realm of the province. Have you had discussions about that? I'm sure it's going to come up tomorrow. Well, we have, and you know the the challenges. And I, you know, I agree with uh, the way the, the the conservation authority monies are dispersed. It's a, it's done on a watershed basis. Uh, that's the way it should be. So we, wherever the watershed lies, that's where conservation authorities have control and mandate. So wherever that water flows, uh, that's the, the 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 main source of revenue needs to go to that location. And then there's some cross boundary issues that have happened. But uh, you know the fact that uh, that one small you know Niagara uh, conservation authority has taken upon itself to charge the entire city of Hamilton 
uh, for this one little section of uh, area that they uh, they manage as part of our municipality and their watershed, I think is fundamentally unfair. And I, I don't want to undo the uh, the way that uh, the funding flows for all conservation authorities. The watershed system is I don't, right I don't think anybody's go. suggesting that. Well, and, 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 I sa- and I sat on the conservation authority for a few years, and I appreciate and I respect the work that they do. Right. But again, the reason that you're getting nailed with this at the city is because, once again, the province has cut back on funding for these and simply said, go to the city and get your money. Well, and that 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 was that historically that's been uh, some some part of the problem. But I think the current one that we face is is that uh, that notion that one little area of uh, the conservation authority that belongs to some other municipality is now charging the entire city of Hamilton for for their work in this one little piece of watershed. I think it's fundamentally unfair. We previously had an agreement that made it more fair for all concerned, and uh, somehow that's been uh, undermined, and it uh, went through uh, through a hearing. Uh, for whatever reason, the hearing officer, uh, you know, agreed with that one municipality and and foisted all of this cost on us, uh, and that's and that's now had a spiraling effect to all the other conservation authorities that have now also reached out and said, well, we want more money too. So uh, I, I think we need to find some fairness in this process. I'm sure it's a topic that will come up tomorrow. Uh, I don't agree that we should stop the watershed kind of approach to this. One councillor suggested that we uh, that we just carve off of this one little area and then just give that to the Hamilton Conservation Authority. Well, that blows this whole notion of watershed control right out of the right out of the, the, the scenario. So I don't think that makes any sense. But the funding regime really needs to be revisited because I think there's some fundamental unfairness in it right now. All right. This, this is going to be tomorrow. Is it City Hall? Tomorrow at City Hall in the council chambers. It'll be a live stream. Starts at 9 o'clock. Uh, everyone's welcome to attend and certainly uh, welcome to uh, to dial in. Uh, we will have some panelists. Uh, this is not a, a, a city council, uh, you know, back and forth. We're not going to have councillors sitting around the table firing questions. This will be our staff. Uh, doing presentations, uh, all councillors. Are, are, are you guaranteeing the councillors are not going to ask questions? Yeah, we guarantee that the councillors are not going to ask questions. Uh, they're not. Uh, they're not. Uh, they're not allowed to. That's not the way the format has been set up. Uh, they can ask questions later on for all of the candidates. Uh, this is really about sharing information and, and, and informing the new uh, provincial candidates about the issues that Hamilton has to face. And this is tomorrow, Hamilton City Hall. It's it's a great idea, great concept. And uh, for those that say, well, we need more civic involvement, well, here's a chance for you to do that and get your voice in, uh, not just with this provincial election, but also to bend the year of some of the uh, the local politicians as well. Mr. Mayor, thanks so much for this. I appreciate the time Always today. Always a pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Yesterday, former uh, Chief of Staff for the Dalton McGinney government was uh, sentenced to four months in jail and a year's probation. Uh, it's uh, expected, of course, that David Livingston, well, he has appealed this, and uh, both the conviction and the sentencing, and uh, he's out on bail right now. But uh, some are suggesting that, well, that puts a wrap on the gas plant scandal and and all the associated concerns about this. Uh, I'm not so sure it's just going to go away. Tom Adams joins us, independent energy and environment consultant, uh, who was, uh, I believe, first of all, thanks for joining us, Tom. You were there yesterday, were you not? Oh, oh yeah, I, I, and I've been uh, in, in the courtroom through uh, most of the trial and all of the uh, rulings of the judge uh, through, throughout the piece, so I, I've been trying to keep an eye on it. What did, what did you think about the verdict? Well, uh, um, yeah, you know, I was kind of expecting, uh, you know, legalese and, a, you know, and a, um, uh, a, a kind of a... A formal kind of presentation from from the judge, um, but 
he got rolling, and I, I, to tell you the truth, I, I, I became emotional in, in sections of the ruling as, as the judge was reading it out. Um, uh, central to the judge's reasoning was his uh, um, uh, this 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 um, logic that he was presenting about the responsibilities of the judiciary to stand up for our democratic principles, the importance of freedom of information legislation, that that those that freedom of information laws be respected, that the 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 rights and privileges of Parliament to obtain information from the government be protected by the judiciary and like the judge is going on about this and I'm at the back of the room uh, and uh, like uh, you know like you can't give a standing ovation to the judge in, in the in the courtroom but man it was it was it was some intense stuff. Do you know what I find about this, Tom? The takeaway that I had from this, and I, I'm going to relate this to uh, to the Dean Del Maestro story. Del Maestro, of course, is the conservative, a federal conservative guy who was uh, uh, finally convicted, of course, of uh, election hanky-panky a couple of elections ago. He's in jail, and he appealed that, and he was sent back to jail. And, and this, uh, this the verdict against Livingston and the sentencing, it, it sends a message, I think, to, to political operatives like that, that we're not, we're not going to tolerate this hanky-panky anymore. If you start screwing people around, you're going to jail. The, the, the judge said it in, you know, um, uh, more or less the, just the, the same logic that, that you have referred to here. The, so the, the, the judge grappled at length with this, this the, the, the fact that uh, this guy Livingston had, you know, prior to his engagement by Dalton McGinty, um, uh, being a person of upstanding character. Here was a guy who was like big uh, um, uh, in, in the volunteer community. Um, uh, he had a stellar career in business and in public administration. This was a, you know, a really top guy. Um, uh, and, and yet, you know, he, he, he turned to, you know, just straight out evil means to, to protect his boss. Um, the uh, uh, the you know the the feeling that was coming off this is that the the, the well the, not the feeling the, the, what the, where the judge was going with this is this is behavior that cannot be tolerated and 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 it's not just this individual who uh, um, you know needs to be held to account for his crime but. The, the 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 values of society need to be upheld here. Governments simply cannot or should not get away with um, uh, destroying documents to avoid accountability. Uh, you know, and you know, again, it was one of those moments in the trial where it's just like, you know, these just these are huge statements. And, and I understand. I mean, I saw some of the feedback, for instance, from Doug Ford and Andrea Horvath, the uh, the two leaders of the other parties, and 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 not unexpectedly, Tom. Of course, they tried to conflate this and say, "Well, you know, you're out a billion dollars." It's it's it. There are two separate issues. I mean, you know, Livingston had nothing to do with the the da the gas plant scandal. He had nothing to do with the decision to cancel it or to pay these people off. That was a political decision, uh, and that'll be you know forever, I guess, in the liberal lore. Livingston's crime, and these were crimes, was that he tried to destroy, he did destroy evidence. And I love the quote from the judge in his, uh, in his verdict yesterday, Tom, I know you remember it. He said, Livingston's conduct was an affront to an attack upon democratic institutions and values, 
Any attempt to tamper with democratic process requires a strong denunciation response. And that's what he gave them yesterday. Yeah, you've made an important distinction here. Um, uh, Governments blow money all the time, you know, for venal political purposes. That... um, uh, that's not what this trial was about. Um, you know, that's the background that put the pressure on the premier's office. Um, uh, you know, this, we're talking about a, a minority government period. Um, uh, you know, where where there'd been this outrageous politicization of the power system, a horrendous waste of of money. You know, people wanted to get to the bottom of it. Government was lying all over the place. McGinty was. Was was claiming that uh, you know it was a two hundred million dollar uh, problem. It was really more than a billion dollar problem. We came to know from the auditor general, uh, you know. So all of that was going on, and it, it, it wasn't that that this 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 character Livingston was was trying to do something funny with the money. That the money wasn't really aside. This was all about covering tracks so that freedom of information and parliamentary inquiries could not get to the bottom of, of the money part of the story. So this is really, a, this is the cover-up that's, 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 that's the key here. And, and uh, the judge was uh, quite explicit in, in, in making that distinction, I think, yesterday, uh, the, his description of, of Livingston as a sophisticated government actor who was in a position of trust and fully aware of his actions. Now, you've heard, Tom, as I have, over the last uh, couple of hours, I guess since the verdict came down yesterday, uh, suggesting that uh, you know he's appealing this, and they say, well, the, you know, the, his lawyer's trying to say, well, there was no harm done. But but I'll go back to the judge's comments that said the harm that occurred here, the harm that he's guilty of of of, of concocting here, was was betraying the trust of the Ontario people. Uh, that that you know he basically said transparency and accountability. Who cares? Uh, and and actually, we, he's he was quoted as making comments to that end. Uh, so and and that's that was his crime is that you had a responsibility as a as a public official uh, to to maintain public you know accountability and transparency, and instead you destroyed documents uh, to try to cover something up, and and that in itself is a crime. Yeah, the um, uh, what what the appeal is is primarily focusing on is um, the, the fact that some key evidence um, that the prosecution attempted to bring was uh, um, uh, b- brought before the judge in a way that was really not proper, and the defense was effective in getting this evidence thrown out. So the evidence we're talking about here is the um, a forensic computer investigations that were done in support of the OPP's investigation. And the, um, uh, so, so as a consequence, the judge didn't have before him, um, you know, properly in evidence, the, the, the exact material that, um, uh, that, that, that Livingston, uh, you know, and his, and his cronies destroyed. Um, and so the, the, the defense is, the theory that the defense is kind of trying to push over here, you know, on us all, is, is that, you know, the idea that, well, you know, the, the people in the premier's office, uh, you know, who's, the 20 computers that were destroyed, they were probably just spending their whole day 
doing video games, watching, you know, cat videos on YouTube and, and, uh, and sending personal and political emails. And none of this stuff related to the gas plants. Or, you know, there's no proof that there was anything to do with the gas plants or anything like that. So, so uh, there's a presumption of innocence about the, the, the contents of the computers that were destroyed. Well, of course, the, the judge dealt with this, 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 this uh, theory of the defense uh, um, attorneys in his decision at length. And he says, look, you know, the, like the, the premier's office is a serious place. Uh, you know, these are very highly qualified people that are, um, you know, are, are, are in the inner sanctum uh, working directly with the premier on the top issues of the day. There is just absolutely no question that these people were dealing with the gas plant issues and that their computers would have had this material on them. So let's just move off this, this, this nonsense, uh, uh, fanciful theory that there was nothing on those computers. Anyway, we'll, we'll see what the appeal court does with it. But, I, it, like, in, you know, I've read through the, 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 the claims that are being made in the appeal and, and it really looks like a, some lame, you know, kind of lawyer stuff um, um, uh, where, where they're making these stretchy arguments, uh, you know, uh, that, that you would have to be pretty naive to accept. But didn't the Crown, uh, I, I guess, counteract that during the course of the trial of the Tom? And, uh, you know, because I, I understand that Livingston's, well, through his lawyer, his contention is is that there was nothing serious on those, those things, that you know, those uh, hard drives that we wiped. Uh, and I, I, the judge, I think, came back, as did the Crown, and simply said, well, we'll never know because you destroyed them. And that's your crime. It's the fact that you destroyed them. We don't know exactly what was on there, but the fact that you destroyed them means we'll never know and that you have robbed the, the Ontario public of the right to know what was on those documents. Well, it's not. Yes, the, the, the judge did say that, and uh, uh, you know, and did make that finding. But in addition, the judge also pointed to evidence, uh, uh, you know, direct evidence uh, of of um, uh, Livingston communicating with others about his desire uh, uh, to make sure that there were no records around uh, that might be uh, uh, available. Uh, for uh, uh, freedom of information inquiries and, and parliamentary inquiries, and, and I should say that w- one of the freedom of information uh, inquiries that he was there were two freedom of information inquiries that he was, I think, most concerned about. One came from uh, um, uh, NDP MPP Peter Tabins, and the other one was from me. And um, it, you know, so Tabins and I were both. You know, driving in at the what I think was the, were the key documents in this case that, um, that 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 ended up getting destroyed. The other element to this goes to intent, and and I know it came up through the course of the trial, Tom, that uh, there was testimony uh, from other Liberal Party members and Liberal uh, uh, staff that that Livingston was warned not to do this. He was told not to do this. I mean, they, well, maybe not told because I mean, they simply said people that have been in that, that that sort of situation much longer than he said you can't do that, you shouldn't do that, and he basically told them. Well, he used the old BS term, and he of all he filled in the rest of the letters and said that's that's just BS. I'm going to do this anyway. So he was obviously flagrantly d- disregarding the, the ethics that were supposed to be implied in a situation like this. 
one of the things that came out in the evidence of the trial is how much a debt of gratitude the people of Ontario owe to some key civil servants in this case. And one of the areas where the civil servants distinguished themselves with with just, you know, a, a really an outstanding commitment to propriety and, you know, in, in public administration was they just lectured Livingston. When they started to become aware of Livingston's, you know, intentions, they had little pieces of information that Livingston was up to no good. And they sent him legal memos, emails, they brought him in for meetings. They lectured him up and down with records all over the place, papered well, um, uh, advising him as to his duties and responsibilities. Keep in mind, in a few years before the gas scandal, McGinty himself had brought in legislation called the Archives and Records Keeping Act. This is legislation that that formalizes the requirement on government to preserve records. Um, uh, and so, you know, so it was absolutely crystal clear to, to Livingston and everybody else in the premier's office, including the bloody premier himself, that this was all material that should have you know, been, been, been properly documented. Livingston knew what he was doing, and that turned out to be a critical component of the judge's reasoning in terms of... Not just his guilt, but also the severity of the of the penalty that was brought down on him yesterday. So, at the end of the day, I mean, there'll be an appeal, and, and you know, there'll be a, 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 a jury. Somebody's going to make a, a determination about that. We get that, but I guess the long term picture here, Tom, is now that this guy's been sent to jail, and, and you know, we referenced the Del Maestro thing from a couple of years ago. Uh, is this going to change the way that, that these sort of administrators do their business at Queen's Park or in, in Parliament Hill in Ottawa? I mean, because this is not the first. They, I, I've referenced two occasions. We, we know that there are many, many more that may never see the light of day in a courtroom. But nonetheless, it goes on on a consistent basis. Is this going to sh- shock these people into, into actually following the rules? You know, one one bit of of the story that, that makes me skeptical that um, uh, that this government's really taking these matters seriously is that the the simple fact that many of the key operatives that were directly involved in um, uh, in, in 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 the cover up and the destruction of documents uh, within the premier's office they're still on the the, the public uh, the taxpayer payroll in the extended public service making huge salaries, uh, you know, whether it's uh, some of them went on to be executives of Pan Am Games or the Alcohol uh, uh, Commission or the, the, you know, the government lottery businesses. And there, there are, there are, many of them are deeply threaded into the, uh, um, you know, the, the current uh, uh, public administration and, and different nooks and crannies where they can get high uh, salaries. And so that suggests to me that you know it's, there's, there hasn't been a cleaning of house, and um, uh, and, and and that suggests a, a lack of seriousness on behalf of the government in appreciating the gravity of the crime that was committed here and the and the overall circumstances of you know the the, 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 the what what this means for for the, the, the reputation of public service. 
Well, and that may be the bigger tragedy of the fact that, first of all, this guy got convicted and that this event happened. But uh, if it's going to be business as usual, notwithstanding this verdict yesterday, then we all lose. Oh, man. Uh, you know, we've got to do better. I'm just so frustrated, you know. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I share your pain, Tom. Well, you know, I mean, in all of what's happened here, that there was only one criminal conviction, and you know, but but you know, there. I mean, we we got to be appreciative for 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 what has been achieved here, uh, and it's also worth mentioning the. Um, uh, the, the the role of the OPP in in this thing. It, th- this is an area where they were subject to criticism. I, I myself, uh, you know, was was very uh, critical at, at points along the way when it looked like nothing was going on over at the OPP. But in hindsight, the uh, the, the OPP, uh, you know, just specifically in this uh, uh, criminal investigation, they distinguish themselves with outstanding public service. We really owe those guys a big vote of appreciation, too. Absolutely. Tom, we got to break it off at this point. As always, thanks so much for this today. Really appreciate it. Right on, Bill. Thanks. Take care. We'll talk again. Tom Adams, independent energy and environmental consultant. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.